Political pundits refer to 2018 as the year of the women. In record numbers, women ran for and won elected office. But in Alabama, the results were a little bit more of a mixed bag. Alabama's governor is a woman, as are two of the state's seven U.S. House representatives. But in state legislative races and other statewide races, things didn't go as well for either party. So what's it like to be a woman running for office in Alabama? Or more specifically, what's it like to be a Republican woman running for office in Alabama in a time when, in large numbers, women appear to be leaving that party on a national level? To answer this question, I turn to the host of The Bell Curve, a podcast launched earlier this year by Mary Scott Hunter, Liz Bashirs, and Rachel Blackman-Briar. Each of the hosts has worked in conservative politics in some capacity during the last decade. Mary Scott served on Alabama's Board of Education before running for the state Senate in the 2018 cycle. And now they host a podcast not dedicated to conservative politics, but to exploring life, work, business, and relationships from a perspective of three women living in Alabama. And so for this episode, we actually agreed to do a crossover podcast. This show was produced by Rachel, and what will follow is an episode of their show exactly as you would find it on any of your podcast platforms. So let's dive into this week's episode of both The Bell Curve and The Reckon Interview. Welcome to Bell Curve with Mary Scott, Rachel, and Liz, three friends, three Southern Bells, joining you, smart women, to discuss life, work, relationships, business, everything from the nerdy to the normal, the practical to the philosophical, the head to the heart. Thanks for joining us as we observe, analyze, and often deviate from the standard. Today, Rachel, Liz, and I are interviewing John Hammontree. Hi, John. Hi. John is the managing producer of Reckon by AL.com and host of the Reckon interview. Uh, so we're super excited to have him. And what we're going to do today is at about the halfway point in the show, we are flipping over to being interviewed. So this is going to be kind of a different show. Lots of fun today. And the episode is being released. If you're listening to it now, it's being released at the same time on the same day in the latter part of October. So that's kind of the setup that we're on. And John, we're super excited to have you. I'm very excited to be here. I haven't been on this side of the chair before, so I'm excited. Buckle up, buddy. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> Although I wonder if you're like me, John. I love to interview. I don't know that I like to be interviewed. We will see. <laughs> well, as they say in the South, ladies first. So we'll start and kick off with our questions. And I guess I'll just kick it off and ask you, John, the podcasting trend is definitely growing. 51% of Americans 12 or older have listened to a podcast. Nearly one quarter of Americans listen to podcasts weekly. 36% of American males listen to podcasts monthly versus only 29% of females. So I'm really not sure what's going on there. We'll have to maybe maybe uh, ladies we can help to rectify that with bell curve more than half of podcast consumers have multitasked while listening to a podcast i know i like to listen to podcasts while i'm folding laundry so it's a thing and back in 2015 when i first started listening to podcasts or trying to find them really it seemed like there was nothing but religion politics and sports and <laughs> 
they still seem to really dominate the podcasting world. But I, I did get more persistent because I had a drive from here to Montgomery at the time that I was doing pretty regularly, which is about three hours away. And I remember finding This American Life and binge listening on that. And then, oh my gosh, in 2016, S-Town came out. Mm. Uh, or maybe that was 2017. And I don't know if we all listen to S-Town. So but good. So that was really what hooked me on podcasting or listening to podcasts. So John, I've listened to a couple of your rec and interview shows. They're fabulous. And your guests are so varied and interesting. I want to know what prompted you to get into podcasting and what, what you binge on and, and all that. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Then let's get into what you love about podcasting. Sure. My name is John Hammontree, as you introduced. I grew up here in Birmingham. I was born in Memphis, but moved to Birmingham when I was six. I've lived in Alabama for most of my life. I briefly have lived in Chicago, D.C., San Francisco, and then currently live in Tuscaloosa and work in Birmingham. So part of what prompted me to get into podcasting was uh, I have an hour-long commute each direction every day, and I either fill it with music or podcast or audiobooks. I joined AL.com in 2015 and started out as a member of the editorial board and guest opinions team. And I think I've worked with all three of you on a guest column at least once in my career there at AL.com. And then in 2017, a group of us got together and started brainstorming what would eventually become Reckon. And the idea was kind of you know, there's a whole generation that can't imagine getting their news from anything other than a newspaper. And then there's the you know coming generation and the current generation that can't imagine picking up a newspaper. And so how do we <laughs> as a uh, company serve our existing audiences through our print publications, but also kind of prepare for our current and future audiences? And, and the idea was kind of like, we have all this really high quality, great journalism that my colleagues like Connor Sheets and Anna Claire Vollers and John Archibald and Kyle Whitmire produce, but not, it, sometimes it gets lost in the shuffle. If you just go to AL.com, you know, you've got, you've got your local business news, you've got your political news, you've got crime news, you've got sports news all going into the same river. And so our proposition was kind of, well, we're going to take all this great work we're already doing and figure out ways we can get it in front of people where they are. So, you know, that's putting it on Facebook and it's putting it on YouTube. And at some point, I realized that the way that I like to consume most of my news is is audio, in part because I can listen to it while walking my dog or, like you said, folding laundry or cooking dinner or driving to and from work. So for me, although to get back to your earlier point about there being so many people listening to podcasts, there's also just so many podcasts. I think yeah. when we launched the Reckon interview, I looked at it and there was at least 700,000 podcasts. Mm -hmm. There's kind of the joke that if you throw three white men in a room, they're going to produce a podcast. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, everybody has one. And the question kind of became, so what can we do to offer something new and of value? And for me, I really like interview shows. I don't necessarily do a whole lot of like the um, long narrative podcasts. I've listened to S-Town and I've listened to Serial and I've listened to a few of the other ones, but I, I really like kind of those digestible conversations like Fresh Air, mm -hmm. um, WTF with Mark Marin. Uh, there's one that I really like called Long Form, and it's a series of interviews with journalists, so it's very niche. <laughs> but mm -hmm. so a lot of what I listen to now is I try to listen to everything I can with whoever my next guest is going to be. So I'll go and listen to, you know, uh, all of Bell Curve and, and things like that before I start the conversation. But I, I think what we set out to do that makes us different, 
hopefully from a fresh air or from some of these other shows is, you know, kind of frame it from the perspective of the South. My first guest was this, is a comedian, Roy Wood Jr. He's an actor. He's also on The Daily Show. He's, he's filming a show in Birmingham. And he had this quote um, that really kind of stuck with me where he talked about, you know, he grew up in Birmingham and he was at college at Florida A&M and he, he liked comedy. He wanted to be a comic. But it wasn't until he saw Ricky Smiley, another comic from Birmingham on Comic View, that he, you know, realized, oh, that's something that a person can from Birmingham can do. And it kind of expanded his view of what's possible for somebody from Birmingham and from Alabama. And so I am trying to find as many different types of guests as possible to kind of expand our view of what is possible from, from mm-hmm. the South. I think we kind of get pigeonholed as like, you know, to be a Southerner means you only do X, Y, Z. Like you have to have a truck and you like hunting and you eat grits. And it's not that that's not being a Southerner or that any of that is bad, but it's, you know, kind of creating this idea of like, there's so many different types of South. And I think that's what motivates me in the conversations, I think. And I've gotten to talk to a lot of cool people. So that's also a fun part. You sure have. How do you you get all these great guests on your show, John? (laughs) You just call them and, you know what? Uh, Persistence. Um, You know, I, I think I've been turned down eight times now for an interview with Jason Isbell and I'm going to keep trying so oh, it's not it's I don't think it's him uh, I hope it's not him I would take that too personally but it, you know it's getting past <laughs> the gatekeeper of the uh, of the publicists and the PR people but you know uh, it, it's something I learned doing guest columns all, you know all you can do is ask when I think it was 2015 so my first year working on the in the opinion space President Obama was coming to Birmingham to make an announcement. I think it was related to HBCUs, but I reached out to his staff and said, hey, would he want to write a guest column about this while he's in town? I mean, I'm sure the president didn't write the guest column, but one of his staffers did, but it had his byline. And I think that was the first time a sitting president had had written a guest column for the Birmingham News. And so that was uh, way too lucky, way too early, but it certainly taught me to always ask. And so, you know, uh, particularly I try to find people with connections to either Alabama or to the South. And I think that a lot of them, I talked with Sonequa Martin-Green, who is the um, star of the current Star Trek series and also uh, was on The Walking Dead. A lot of people would recognize her from that. And she's going to be in Space Jam. But she grew up in Russellville, Alabama and went to the University of Alabama. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that she necessarily gets asked about that part of her life uh, that often. And she she enjoyed talking about it. So, or at least I hope she enjoyed talking about it, but I enjoyed it. Many and varied aspects of the South. It is not monolithic or binary. John, I've got a question for you. I mean, it seems like, you know, always ask, don't be afraid to ask is a piece of advice you could give to creators, podcasters, as someone who listens to podcasts and creates one, what, what, what good advice would you give to someone who's thinking of starting a podcast or creating at all? Yeah. Specifically with a podcast, I think you, you want to have what your idea is, like kind of drilled down. You know, if there are 700,000 podcasts out there and they're more growing every day, it's really hard to break out. And so, you know, you, you want to produce consistently and you want to be at least decent enough sound quality that it's not painful to listen to. I've listened to plenty of podcasts where the sound quality is not great, but the conversations are. And I think an audience is pretty forgiving if as long as what you're producing is interesting. You know, it's the same with kind of video production or anything like that. As long as you authentically have something to say or are talking with people who have something to say, I think that people are going to find that. And then also just kind of be patient with it, Um, particularly on podcasting. I mean, 
Mary Scott and I were talking about the, the, that this week. The metrics are terrible. Like, there's no reliable way to know who's listening, how many people have downloaded it, how many people have subscribed, where they are from. We we have a, a variety of services that we kind of try to get as much data from as we can. But you know, Spotify has its proprietary data, and Apple has its, and they don't necessarily all go into one feed very well. And so, don't necessarily get discouraged by the data early on. Podcasts take a while to grow. And then also just, you know, try try as best you can to be yourself on uh, either in your writing or in your video production or on your podcast. I, I feel more comfortable during doing the interview segment than I do doing the introduction segment. The introductions always sound a little bit canned, uh, and I'm trying to get a little bit more conversational with those. And then also just at least what I did was studied as much as I could before doing my first interview. Not only studied the guests, but studied interview styles. You know, I listened to early, early Terry Gross episodes and it's, you know, it's a little comforting that like everybody has to start somewhere. Like, yes. you know, yes. even, even, even Oprah you wasn't Terry, Oprah when she Terry started. Terry Gross wasn't awesome when she started. I mean, she was, you could see the potential. Uh, you could see, you know, you could tell that she and Oprah and, and all these others were going to be great when they started, but you got to give yourself a little bit of grace to uh, to improve as as things go along. And I and I look back. I mean, I listen back to my early episodes, and the sound quality is not nearly what it was now. And I mean, I'm only 13 episodes in, and so just know that you'll grow, and that it's okay to grow in front of in front of your audience. I think. And then you know, find a style that's suitable for you. John Archibald he talked about to me at one point that when he started writing, he tried to write like Rick Bragg and well, he, you know, Rick Bragg writes like Rick Bragg, but you, at some point, like you can try on different styles and see what works for you, but you have to ultimately create like yourself. And, you know, I can't do Conan O'Brien needs a friend because I'm not a famous uh, talk show host who has 20 years of, you know, experience under the belt and can call up all my stand up comic friends and just, riff with them for an hour. And you really don't and have so, the hair for it either. Sorry. And I no. don't have the, yeah, I can do the dance though, but I don't have the, uh, I don't have the hair. So, you know, it, it, I think that's my chief piece of advice. John, you and I are about the same age and I, I want to, you know, you've given us some great things to think about and talk about with podcasting, but we have seen as much as anyone, this change from a traditional, you know, traditional news sources and then kind of Go, well, like you were saying, going over into the digital age and trying to feed both of these populations. And I know you've been at the forefront of adapting uh, Alabama Media Group to the new standards. But what are some ways you think it's important for, on the other side, for readers and listeners of the news in general to keep their heads up and their eyes peeled, to, to be able to not only trust what they're reading and seeing and hearing, but be able to differentiate between what is, I hate to use these terms, but fake news? Sure. Uh, it's really hard. It's really hard. And, you know, I think the four of us are probably pretty steeped in, in news daily and are constantly consuming news. But even for us, you know, I mean, sometimes reputable news so sources get things wrong. The difference is, is that when they get things wrong, they typically issue a correction. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't think are intentionally or willfully getting things wrong. As somebody who works for a local news company, what one piece of advice I would always give is click through the links and try to find the original story, you know, find the local version of the story. Not there, there are a bunch of websites that specialize in news aggregation and sometimes their news aggregation either misinterprets the news or intentionally spins it to say something very different than it is. 
and then somebody will aggregate that and somebody will aggregate that and somebody will aggregate that <laughs> and and at some point it's a game of telephone and if you drill down to the original story you might find that it's not the way that it's being framed or you will at least have your own interpretation of it um find news curators that you trust because there is so much information out there you, you know one of the things that we set out when, to do with reckon was to to say okay we're not only going to publish post al.com content you know if the montgomery advertiser publishes a stunning investigative series or the aniston star does something or the decatur daily does something or you know wall street journal new york times bitter southerner Atlanta Journal-Constitution, if it's something that we think our audience needs to know about, we're going to share that story. And I think that that's how we have kind of built that trusted relationship with our audience. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people who, who don't trust us, but that's, that's part of what we try to offer. I receive a number of different news newsletters. Axios is one that kind of curates political news for me. I like Dave Weigel or Weigel. I don't know how his name is pronounced, but the, with the Washington Post, he he kind of keeps me up to speed on all of the political news with his the trailer newsletter. And so I think that's one way is just finding people that you trust. I mean, it might be different for different people. And then also click through the link. You know, don't don't just share it. Don't just uh, read the headline. <laughs> don't read the comment on it. And, and we're all guilty of this. I, I, mean, I, was say, I, I have I, to admit, I'm pretty guilty about that. I don't I, know how many times yeah. I've told my husband, oh, I saw the headline, but I, I don't yeah. know the actual story. I do that a lot. And and there are, there are just so many different ways to consume news now. Like um, we were talking about podcasts. I mean, the Daily typically gives you what the New York Times best three stories of the day are. And Post Reports is the same thing. And there's a bunch of those daily news podcasts. And you know, find that the straight news reporters more so than the commentary folks as much as you can which i, I hate saying because i work in commentary but, yeah i think all three of <laughs> us are commentators <laughs> but it has to be based in something and so i mean when y'all are offering commentary and the commentary is rooted in news and facts then you are going to the to the news sources and the and the data and and i think that's you know it's not that you don't want to listen to people tell you their opinion on things i think that's very important obviously but I think that before you take their opinion as your own, make sure you go do as much like work on this as you can. And I know everybody else. I mean, people are very busy and not everybody can can take the time to do that. And so I think that's why we try to figure out alternative ways to get information to people. It seems like there there's a need more than ever for a healthy amount of skepticism. Just a, not skeptical of everything, not distrusting of everything. You can't live that way. That's a pretty awful way to live. But just... You know, when you're on your phone scrolling around, when you're on Facebook, when you're, you know, when you're consuming news, a little bit of skepticism is probably a healthy thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you don't want to get too cynical where you don't trust anything. And I, I think that there are some politicians who are trying to create an environment where you just don't trust anything. And I think mm -hmm. that that's dangerous. You, you know, you do have to have a certain level of, of willingness to to take facts as they come. But yeah, I think it's healthy. I mean, particularly in an era where we're probably going to see deep fakes um, in the 2020 cycle of, you know, mm -hmm. videos showing a politician doing X, Y, Z, even though it's a fake video. But that phenomenon is coming. It certainly has been tested in the, a lot in the last couple of years. And and then don't trust anonymous Twitter trolls <laughs> or, or things like that. Yeah, uh, and so yeah. yeah, for sure. I had yeah. one the other day on Twitter. I'm, I am like, I don't know, 75% sure this person was a, a Russian bot um, <laughs> pretending to be an Alabamian. <laughs> and I just like, I always want to respond to them. Just, 
unsubscribe. <laughs> Go back to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> you know, John, I absolutely loved your interview of Casey Sepp on uh, the Reckon interview. And she, she, Casey, for our listeners, we have a lot of listeners who are readers. We're, we're doing a, we do a book club. We're going to take up a, a book club book on, on November the 5th. But Casey's book, Casey Sepp's book is, she kind of left off on a, a Harper Lee never published book about a serial killer in Alex City. And I... God, what a great interview. I, I had no idea that Harper Lee had another unfinished piece that, you know, you always think of her as just a, you know, a one novel author. I mean, albeit maybe the, the greatest Southern novel ever. That was a great one. I liked the interview of Sarah Parsak on archaeology from space. That just was fascinating uh, and totally up our bell curve alley, by the way, you know, <laughs> all the facts and figures. And, uh, but your interview of Margaret Rankle struck me. I was laughing and crying at the same time. And my co-host here will tell you, you're about to get a head nod. I don't cry at funerals. I didn't cry at Old Yeller. I, 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 you know, when, when I don't like it when sports heroes cry. I don't like, I don't think there should be crying <laughs> in football. <laughs> Sorry, all you Tebow fans out there. I just don't. But that interview left me laughing and crying all at the same time, like in the same moment. And I think sometimes that the South is sometimes understood by internally, by those of us that are our Southerners and externally by non-Southerners. Is, and we kind of alluded to this at the beginning. It's a, it's a binary place. It's all good. It's all bad. Well, that's not Obviously, no, it, that's not the way it is. And I'm, but what I want to know from you is what do you love most about the South and what do you hope will change? Ooh, that's a big question. Well, so to answer this question, I guess I kind of have to go back to when I did think it was a binary, I guess. So when I was in high school, my primary goal was to get out of the South. You know, when you grow up in Birmingham and what you see, and read and hear about Birmingham is kind of frozen in the 1960s, you internalize this idea that Birmingham is a bad place, or at least some people do. Not a, You could go the other way and kind of internalize the idea that everywhere else is the bad place and that the South was the put-upon place. I think, I think a lot of people go either way with that. But for me, it was kind of internalizing this idea because I had been able to travel some when I was a kid and got to go to New York and Chicago and California and other places. And then, and you know, kind of in the cinematic depiction, this is simplifying it, but in the cinematic depiction, those are like the interesting and varied places with rich stories. And that's where you have to go to be something is you have to go to New York or you have to go to Chicago. And so I went to Chicago and um, I was in film school there my freshman year and I loved it. But I also kind of found myself in an unexpected position of, of being an advocate for Birmingham and for Alabama and kind of saying, oh, well, no, it's not like that. It's, you know, it's not what you think it is. It, it, it's more, there's more to it than that. Birmingham is a city and it has all the things that a city has. And I also started to see, okay, well, you know, Chicago has problems. Chicago it has, it goes back and forth with Milwaukee as being the most segregated cities in the country. And, you know, it has corruption issues and it has a lot of wonderful things in common with the South too. I mean, it has great Midwestern hospitality and great food. And so I don't in any way want to besmirch Chicago, uh, which I think sometimes a lot of people, uh, particularly in AL.com comments, uh, like to do. But I think that Chicago, uh, you know, going there and kind of being exposed to people from all over the country made me better appreciate my hometown and my home state. And 
So then I ended up transferring down to Alabama for my sophomore through senior years and got involved with some organizations that took me all around the state. And, you know, I got to meet a lot of people in all sorts of communities in Alabama and kind of hear the issues that they're dealing with, but also figure, I mean, learn about the ways that they've overcome a lot of the issues. And, you know, that kind of set me on a path that and a Drive by Truckers album, uh, Southern Rock Opera, where they talk about the duality of the Southern thing. It set me on a path of kind of trying to explore all of the South's history and problems and issues, but also like how that's not only a Southern story, it's an American story and how that gets us in a place where, yeah, race relations in the South still are terrible. You know, we can say that we've we've made a lot of progress since the 1960s and we have, but things are still bad. And so, you know, it's not a matter of saying, oh, well, it's bad everywhere. So it's okay that it's bad here. Things are bad here. But I think that if we recognize that that is the story of America as a whole, and that, you know, in the South, black people and white people have been living alongside each other for 300, 400 years. If we are going to fix that problem on a national level, it's probably going to start in places like Atlanta and in Birmingham and in New York. But, you know, it's going to start in places where people have been living together side by side, hopefully. And, you know, I, I for a long time, tried not to read like civil war literature and stuff like that because it just seemed like such a stereotype but then i started reading it and i like it and you know i studied the civil rights movement <laughs> and i try to just take the south in in all of its kind of ugly messy glory but also it's good things you know i mean and that's part of what i get into the with the reckon interview is like yeah sure the south may not have or alabama may not have broadband in most places and that's part of our story but another part of our story is that Jimmy Wales from Huntsville founded Wikipedia and Tim Cook runs Apple. We may have George Wallace, but we also had John Lewis. And so I think that to me, that's the story for so many Southerners. It's kind of an either or, like you either only want to live in the Civil War <laughs> period and the antebellum period, or you only want to live in kind of the civil rights movement. And I think that what I love about the South is that it's kind of both and, that it's uh, it's all of that story, and it's you know it's it's messy, but it's also beautiful and and poignant, and there's a lot of great moments in that. Well, I think at this point we should switch and let you be the interviewer, and we okay. will take questions. and And we thank you for that, John. It's it it is a it's a nuanced place, and it's complicated, but I love your answer because it really does recognize that there are. Like any place, there are things we want to change, but there are things that that we love and appreciate and wouldn't wouldn't ever want to change. You know, don't ever stop eating grits with cheese. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, I certainly don't, won't. Don't ever, yeah, the, don't ever stop. The easy answer to what I love is food. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is this is fun. This is also a a harder interview for me because one, it's one on three, uh, but also because y'all have done such a good job on your show and. You know, all of your your current audience will know it, but I hope that my audience will go and listen to your show as well. Y'all do a great job of really diving into your own personal stories and being vulnerable and uh, talking about important and tough topics. And that's what I try to draw out of my interview subjects. So this may be some of this may be a little redundant for your audience, but hopefully for my audience, it's new. I think to start, why don't y'all tell me how you became friends and how you came to um, make this show? 
So why don't I start with that one? I was friends with both these ladies, Liz from my political days. Um, Rachel came and interviewed me when she was at a, a previous news publication. And at, at a point, I started thinking about podcasting because, as you mentioned, you were a listener of podcasts. I was a listener of podcasts, and I was thinking about podcasting, and I felt like it would be better together. I wanted partners. I was tired of doing things alone and without a team. And and I had these wonderful friendships with these two wonderful women. And I, I started thinking about all the things that I do where I go and I sit with women and like, it's book club, but it's not really book club. It's Sunday school, but it's not really Sunday school. It's, mm -hmm. it's Bible study, but you might do a little Bible study, but you do a whole lot of talking. And I thought, you know, I think a show like that, where we also have a commitment to authenticity and to bringing in data, good data that broadens the mind. That was what I was interested in doing. And so I reached out to these two ladies and all of that wasn't fleshed out at the time. That was just kind of something we I was thinking about. And we came together and it took an extremely long time to, <laughs> to get Bell Curve to live because it's a whole lot harder, as you know, to produce a show than, than you know, you do, you do joke, you know, three people get in a room and you have a podcast, but it really, to do a really good one, um, content wise and production wise, it's not easy. And so I would say that that's how, from my perspective, that's how it starts. And I'll kick it over to the ladies. I think you asked, you know, how we how we all met in the first place. And I think some people would be surprised to know that we haven't known each other in the grand scheme of things all that long. I worked with Mary Scott on her political race in what was that, 2016? Mm -hmm. And I met her actually after I wrote an article not just a few weeks before we met for AL.com, not an article, a, a column for AL.com saying that I think 2016 might be the year of the woman because we, that was when Kay Ivey became governor. It, Martha Roby was doing great things. And, and then you could see Mary Scott's name was always, was always somewhere. She was always making moves, either pissing people off or, or <laughs> uh, doing great things. I'm extra um, good at that. <laughs> extra good at that. And um, and then her you know, somebody associated with her campaign called me and was like, "Hey, I think y'all should meet." And um, so met her and then met Rachel through some some online publication stuff. And and when Mary Scott called us up to say, "Hey, I have this idea," you know, I knew Rachel, but I you know, we we weren't close friends yet. But today I, I would count these two ladies among you know, the closest friends I have, even though I would say this, this friendship really only started about a year ago. It was about last September when we first sat down and said, Hey, let's try to, let's try to do this thing. Yeah. And I just, I love both of these women so much. And I think when you respect somebody and you have fun working on a project together, for me, at least as kind of an introverted kind of person, it's, it's nice to have, all right, we do this thing on Fridays at this time or whatever it is. It f kind of forces you to get together because you have a project to work on. And I've found that that has deepened our relationship and kept it going. Whereas we're all busy. We might not even be keeping up with each other, frankly, if we didn't have this project to work on together. But we have some epic tech streams. We do. I mean, we do. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I saw a taste of that this morning when we were doing the uh, logistics and the, the setup. Sorry about that. <laughs> and I do have to say this about Mary Scott. This is what made me really like her is that I went in when I met her, I had my reporter hat on and I was thinking, OK, I'm, I'm going to give her some hard questions. 
And I'm really interested to see how she responds. And I was so impressed and grateful that she didn't take offense like some, you know, people sometimes take offense at reporters who are doing their job and asking hard questions. And she didn't take offense. And she also didn't try to have it both ways. And I really appreciated that. Well, I want to pick up on something that Liz mentioned about kind of the year of the women in Alabama. And, you know, if if polling is accurate, the three of y'all are, are part of this demographic that's kind of started to shift away from the Republican Party in the last three years. In the era of Trump, well-educated suburban white women have either gone independent or have started to move towards the Democratic Party. The three of you have each worked in Republican politics or conservative politics, at least in some capacity. So, well, two things. Do you still identify that way? And if so, what's your uh, pitch for why your peers should stick with it? I'll go first, mostly because I don't know if I've ever truly identified myself as a Republican. I have considered myself a libertarian since I was 13 years old, co-founded the Libertarian Club at the University of Alabama. But for a really long time, I considered the, the broader right in the Republican Party as the vehicle through which a lot of the policy things I wanted implemented to be done. And I'll sit here and say that I, th- I think that's been a huge mistake, and that's that's been it's been largely been a disappointment for the things that I think are important, which are you know decreasing the size of government so that people can thrive, being there to protect, people, not to inhibit them from doing the things that would enrich their life, that kind of thing. You know, I, I as far as being a educated suburban white woman, it would take a lot for me to ever honestly side with the the, the larger. Republican platform as it looks like right now. I think there are some great Republican politicians. I think there are some great Democratic politicians. It's it, my comfort place right now is just being skeptical of everybody, though. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, I'm trying not to do the office thing and like, uh, I don't know, talk while I'm thinking, but um, there are so many directions to go on this question. I do still think of myself as a Republican, although I have. I will say that both parties are struggling with the edges and the edges being the, you know, you would think of the middle as being the pull and the middle being, you know, on the bell curve, if you think about a bell curve, like our our show title, you're going to find most of the facts, most of the opinions, most of the stuff right there in the, the largest part of the curve. But right now politics is sort of a double bell curve and, and the, the middle is hollowed out and the edges are pulling you know, are pulling, and especially in an election cycle. And what happens with that is that, you know, people who don't identify very far to the right or very far to the left, they feel like they don't have a place. And so that's a hard, that's a hard thing right now, because I do think there are a lot of Republican or would be Republicans that they don't, they're not there because the edges are dominating in the political speak and in the policy platform so, uh, and that's really not just a Republican problem. That's a that's an everybody problem. But one thing I've been sort of have mixed feelings about is to call it the year of the woman. Um, you know, yes, there were some high profile elections. You know, of course, Ivy was elected, and we had you know we we do have some you know some success. But if you look down ballot or even left and right across the big ballots, federal, state, local. 
it's not a success story, right? You know, 20 years ago, we had double or more the number of women in the Republican caucus in the federal house than we have today. We're down to 12 or 13 women in the Republican caucus of the U.S. House of Representatives. That's pitiful. That's, that's, so that's, it's not a good news story. So the way that I am dealing with it, I've always felt like you should try to be, you should try, if you want to change, try to change what's in your span of control. I don't have the federal Congress within my span of control. I can't change that. I'm not running for Congress or, or anything. But what I can do is be the president of the downtown Republican women in Huntsville, Alabama, a club that had kind of gone a little bit dark. They hadn't been meeting but we have a need for a Republican club for working women in Huntsville. We have a club that is mostly populated by retired women who have more time. And we needed a space for members to be able to have a very quick in and out you know, buffet style. You know, it, it has to start and end on time. You know, that was so what I tried to do is start a club that would reach me and the demographic that are like me. And so I did that. And, and uh, we brought, for example, we brought Anna Claire Ballers uh, to talk about the motherhood project from AL.com. And that was extremely well received. So I guess the answer that I'm crafting, and I don't know if it's a good one, but I would say for me, the Republican Party platform, I'm going to identify more with that because that's just where my, my head is on the major issues, not on all issues, but on the major ones. And so that, that also prompts me to try to, you know, create a party that I can be in. And so that's what I've been trying to do within the tiny span of control that I have. John, I guess maybe my, like Liz, I, I can't say I've drifted because I can't say being a Republican has ever been a part of my identity either. Uh, I'm registered to vote as a Republican. I typically vote Republican, um, but I'm not a Republican activist or booster or any of that. And I can tell you, maybe this sounds harsh, but I care absolutely nothing about the party. Yeah. What I do care about are conservative issues that affect my family and the overall direction of our state and country, and probably feel more strongly about that now than I ever have as, as a parent. But, you know, my perspective is generally conservative. I remember reading as a college senior, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And I think, you know, people take that in different directions. Some people, they read that and they become libertarian or they become progressive or whatever. And I read it and just the light bulb just started flashing. And I was like, oh, this stuff, ideas matter. And, you know, when I think about that, you know, not every Republican is conservative, right? I mean, I, I, and I could care less about Trump. I don't like Trump. I appreciate the good things that have happened since he's been in office. And I'll, I'll frankly be, be glad when he's gone. But that doesn't mean I'd be glad to have a Democrat in office either. Ramesh Panuru, the title of one of his books is The, the Party of Death. And, you know, talking about Democrats, really, that's one of the main things that comes down to for me. I mean, Doug Jones may be a really nice guy. I, I like him as a person, but I wonder if other people might relate. I don't know that I could vote for him because of his, his views on abortion. I voted for Trump, and I think I actually had tears in my eyes after. I, I was upset. I, did, I didn't like doing that, but at the time, it felt like the lesser of two evils. Kind of riffing off of what both of y'all have said to, to go back to where I feel is I have felt politically homeless for a really long time because it has felt like there is not a place with for people with nuanced views on a variety of topics. It's it's kind of like we were talking about with the binary 
views of the Southern, you know, of being Southern is like, okay, well, you're either all this. And so you believe all the things that these people say, or you're all that. And you believe all the things that those people say, where I, I do think that most people are in the middle. And like Mary Scott said, the, the conversation, the national conversation is being dominated by the people on the edges. And, you know, there are, so my degree is in economics and, one of the first things you learn, maybe the first thing you learn your first day of, of Microecon 101 is that people respond to incentives. And I think there are a lot of really bad incentives in politics right now for people to speak specifically to and rile up those people on the edges. I want to pick up on something that Rachel talked about, and I think it ties into something that both Liz and Mary Scott talked about. Y'all are all right that there's a lot of people in the middle, but I do think that there is um, there is a large segment of people, particularly in Alabama, that, like you mentioned, Rachel, the pro-life mindset, um, philosophy, worldview is kind of the overriding political belief. My question would be this: you know, the state legislature has passed an abortion ban. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are on the court. The Republican Party has also filled up the majority of the rest of the federal court system. President Trump is in the White House. He ran on an anti-abortion platform. So to some extent, at least for the moment, until you know courts weigh in one way or the other, the anti-abortion philosophy has won. So if that has been an animating decision factor for the majority of Alabama voters for the last decade— now that that issue has temporarily, at least, been decided, does that mean that that vocal population will start pressing Republican politicians on issues like um, maternal and infant mortality? Because, uh, you know, as Mary Scott was talking about, the, the downtown Republican women of Huntsville were very captivated by Anna Claire's motherhood stories, and I think a lot of, a lot of the state population has been um, captivated by those. And yet, and it might be because there aren't enough women in office, and yet those stories and those topics and those um, factors are not driving the conversation in our state legislature. It's kind of, okay, well, we know we know we can get people to turn out to the polling places if we talk about being anti-abortion. But if you talk about being pro-mother, then it's not going to turn out voters. So I, I'm curious as to how y'all would respond to now that that issue is— you know, it's not that it will ever be decided. It wasn't decided with Roe v. Wade, but it is it is currently in a uh, holding pattern, I guess. So what is what is next for the pro-life movement? I think that the issue is uh, it's it's back up for debate. And I think that I think for me anyway, I think that is a good thing. And I think that the thing that has changed for me anyway, is that there's more science now to understand what's going on, what's going on medically, what's going on with the fetus, what's going on in the womb. So that I think is a part of the debate that I'm interested in, in I'm interested in that playing out. Now, um, I also think that whether it's, whether it's guns, whether it's abortion, whether it's uh, the border, there are issues that are hot button issues that are being used by people for their own purposes, not for not because of the issue itself, not because they have a a bona fide held position that they feel strongly about, which is 
I respect that. I, when people would comment on my Facebook, for example, and they would disagree with me, but they had a bona fide reason um, that they believed. You know, those are, that's great. I, I like to see that. I like to see that kind of debate. But what is troubling is that people are, are using these issues not for the purpose of advocating uh, for one side or another on the issue itself, but in order to drive people to something else, drive people to the polls for their own purposes, drive people to, you know, into a, a fervor. And I see it, I, I particularly worry about older Americans who um, are retired and they're watching and, and, and ingesting a lot of media and, and they're being made to feel scared and worried. Now that's a long, you know, roundabout answer, but your original question is was on the abortion issue. I I am glad that it is being revisited on pro-life. I, I have lots of friends and loved ones who are not. Uh, and I do think that it's going to be debated again. And, you know, and I personally am ready for that. And I think it's entirely fair for people to ask, you know, what what are we doing for babies and mothers in Alabama once they're born? I think that's very fair. I think that the work that Anna Claire Vollers is doing to point out some things that maybe people aren't aware of, we have to know. I mean, one of the things I'm most interested in is unintended consequences. So, you know, you move in a direction, you pass laws, and then there's all these new effects, and you can't stop there. So if people are having more babies, and if there are more children in foster care, if there are more children being put up for adoption, if, if women are not getting access to good health care, it doesn't stop with with the baby being born. And so I think we have to dig into that further up, further in, and not just stop at the pro-life as in now the baby's been born, we've done our job. Is it Maya Angelou who said, when you know better, you do better? I think that's one of her one of her well-known quotes. I, I think a big problem is there have been a lot of people in positions of power who haven't known better for one reason or another. I, you know, I think we're just coming out of a a generation of lawmakers who were raised in families where the father was the breadwinner and the mother stayed at home. And that's not, I mean, not to disparage that way of growing up. My mom was a stay at home mom while, while I was young, but if, if that's your worldview and you say, well, why is this an issue? Like the, of course the mom's going to take care of the kids when it comes to, you know, deciding breastfeeding or formula or taking a long maternity leave, taking some time off, uh, from work for a while, but that's not the world we live in anymore. We've talked about this before of, of the percentage of women who end up, you know, going straight back into the workforce after a relatively short maternity leave. And I'll be honest, it's, it's not something that I put a whole lot of thought into until I started looking at the changes that my own little family was going to have to make when we decide to have kids. I mean, that's a, that's, you don't really think about, Oh, what's my, uh, office's maternity leave policy until you start thinking about what I'm going to need when I need to go on maternity leave. And so I, I think that's this is an issue where representation really, really matters. The more people that we have in office who know, who recognize and are willing to tackle this kind of issue, the better. I, I don't think that one party has a monopoly on good policy for this particular issue, though. I think everybody has kind of dropped the ball in Alabama on it when they've had the opportunity to do something about it. Uh, that was abundantly clear when, a when Anna Claire was at our club and talking about it. My goodness, there have been so many opportunities. For example, we, we uh, there was an extremely long car ride example for so many Alabama women 
getting just to a hospital when they're in labor. <laughs> you know, that resonated with my group. Almost everybody, every woman in that room has had a child. And if not every single one of them have had a child. And so that resonated when they thought of their own experience. They thought, what if I had had to drive two and a half, 90, you know, to 150 minutes? You know, that's a long 150 minutes. So commendable for AL.com and Reckon to, to take up the motherhood project because there's no doubt that it's resonating. Well, you know, we talked a little bit about representation in the legislature. And, you know, at least as of right now, uh, as of the moment that we were recording this conversation, both parties in Alabama are currently run by women. That <laughs> By the time it airs, who knows what's going to happen with the Democratic Party because there's all sorts of messy stuff happening there. But as of right now, both parties are run by women. Uh, the governor is a woman. Two of our seven U.S. House reps are women. All that, is, all that said, we still rank near the bottom in most metrics um, when it comes to women, whether it's uh, pay equity or maternal mortality. And last year, we did have a record number of women who ran for office here, but most lost. And we've only had nine female state senators in history. And this year, it looks like uh, Martha Roby, who is resigning, that everybody running for her seat, at, at least as of now, I think is male. There are groups that are emerging nationally uh, and, and in the state that are training women to run for office. The ones that at least that make the most news have been groups like Emerge Alabama that are on the left. What does the right need to do to train more women to run for elected office? Um, is, it, is it important to have more women in office? And then what does current leadership in both parties need to do to better advocate for women in the state? Let, let me start with the is it important piece. And whether you're talking about politics or higher ed or the engineering career fields or the STEM career fields or whatever you're talking about, in America, we need to be utilizing all of our people at their high, and they all need to be functioning as their best selves because other countries uh, who have huge populations, two, three, four, five times the size of the United States of America, if they educate and raise up only half of their population, then we're talking about competing brain power. And in the future, you know, we, we have been a country of innovation and of, uh, and although we, we grouse a lot about public education, our, our country is extremely well educated when you compare it to other, even first world nations. And so I think that it is important in politics, um, if we're extracting just that one, that we are u using all our, all our resources. And that means that women also have to be have to be at the table. And, you know, there there are some examples of where they are. Certainly the governor is a great example. She's in office and, and we have Terry Lathan at the, you know, heading up the Alabama Republican Party and she's doing a fine job. And that, but, but you're right, our, you know, we do have an all male Republican Senate in Alabama, 100% male Republican Senate in Alabama. Um, I know because I ran for that seat and was uh, and was not elected, so I know that very all too well. Um, very hard ceiling to break, and and what happens in those conversations is that there's just a missing piece. You know, they they meet, they talk, they're making decisions, and you know they meet as a caucus, so they're only the senators there. So by no fault of the of the men who are there, they're they're doing a good job. They're bright men they have the best of intentions i'm sure in most cases but there's just a there's a missing piece that's that's going to be 
that's that's not at the table. And and I can't tell you exactly what it is because there's a hundred zillion conversations that could occur. But if you don't have people with varied experiences and um, with varied backgrounds and coming from varied race, creed, color, national origin, then you're just going to have a missing element to the conversation. So I, I'll say it is important for that reason. Um, you're not going to solve problems unless you get all those talent, skills, and abilities to the table. So in terms of training, of course, we should have better training. Uh, of course, we should have more opportunities because the way to get women elected or, or African-Americans or um, whatever your race, creed, color, national origin, the way to get people elected is for them to run. They have to run. And if that is seen as some monolithic thing that's insurmountable, then they won't run. And then there's no chance that they can be elected. So, yes, I would say the Republican Party needs to be reaching out to those people. They need to be encouraging them, helping them to helping them to put together their campaigns. I mean, obviously, when it comes to endorsements, I, you know, you, you see a lot of under the table endorsing of candidates in the Republican Party. And that's that's where I wish that I I mean, it happens. I mean, it's not an out-and-out -out endorsement that the party or some large organization that is identified as conservative is endorsing in a primary, but in fact, they are. They're, you know, one person is getting a lot of help um, and one person is not. And that, unfortunately, that's probably true, you know, everywhere. Uh, and that's the reason why we're, you know, we're not seeing as many women in, you know, at the, like at the federal level in, in the House. Now, the Democrats, on the other hand, I don't know what's happened there, but my goodness, they're, they're a patchwork quilt. And it's just so nice to see, you know, so many colors, so many, uh, you know, both genders. It's so nice to see such a such diversity in the Democrat Party, and I, I, I long for on that. The my, level, not, on the national level, on the national level, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. On the national level, um, but I long for that and and to see that in the Republican Party. But you know, all we can do is, you know, from my perspective, as I'll go back to what I said a second ago about being, you know, master of your own territory. All you can do is is try to try to do what you can within your span of control. So. John, I wonder if part of this, I mean, research shows that we as human beings are so much more motivated by negative feelings than positive feelings. That's just the case. So, you know, when you think about you have the Republican Party, there's a supermajority for women who identify as Republicans, maybe in their mind, they're not, this isn't on their radar. Their anger is not being provoked. They're not getting riled up inside to go run for office. So are people, are women being held out of office? I'm not convinced. I'm convinced there's not as much of a motivation to run. And I, I do wonder if that's the case. I'll, I'll also just say that I think that here in Alabama, you know, men and women aren't doing very well, right? I mean, there's some statistics out of the Alabama Department of Education, University of Alabama, Department of Public Health, that would say that, you know, if you're a man in Alabama, a young man in Alabama, you're more likely to drop out of high school than a woman, less likely to have any post-high school education than a woman, less likely to graduate from college, less likely to earn a postgraduate degree, more likely to be unemployed, die in an accident, be murdered, commit suicide, and you're likely going to die several years earlier than a woman in Alabama. So what that says to me is, you know, poverty, lack of quality education, we're all kind of in this together. And I'm not sure anyone's doing very well. I think there, there are a lot of um, traditions, entrenched organizations, et cetera, that really on both sides in Alabama thrive on the wait your turn model. And so if somebody has been tapped to 
have a certain office or is on a certain path politically, they might not get they not might not get to what they want until they're in their sixties. But by by God, they've waited it out and and uh, so they're the next in line. So they're going to get that nod, formal or informal, um, from their party. I think we're seeing that with some some of the issues the Democratic Party is having in their senior leadership where, um, you know, I've been doing this for so long, so it's mine and and you're not allowed to touch it. And I think the exact same thing happens in, in some cases in the Republican Party too of, well, you haven't been in the party structure for the last 40 years. So you're, you're way farther down the bench than some of these guys who have, who have been active in the Republican Party since they were in college. I, I think that's part of it. I, I will say, I, to what Rachel said about motivating factors, <laughs> I don't know that I would ever want to run for office um, in this environment where you do have to kind of scream at the edges to to get anybody riled up enough to come out and vote for you. I think the only times that we've seen big upsets of establishment figures are when something crazy has happened, like with Doug Jones getting elected or um, people just kind of getting sick of, of the status quo and, and you know, some young upstart like Alexandria Ocasio-Ortez Ortez in, in uh, New York just you know, working her butt off and getting out there and saying, hey, maybe this person hasn't been doing the things you want to, and I'm just going to outwork them, even though they have all the money and all the power and all that kind of thing, too. So it takes really special circumstances to upset that that entrenched system, I think. And I think there's just a lot of people who who don't have the the motivation for one reason or another to get out there and do it. And I think that's going to hurt us in the long run. But <laughs> I'm not going to run for office. Are you kidding me? Me neither. I can't um, think of anything I would rather not do. Uh, that is you're getting called out uh, there, a, a negative. <laughs> uh, I, I can I can I can attest that it's not a fun thing to do. <laughs> I mean, um, it's it is rewarding to run for office, and I would I would encourage anybody who is out there in our listening view to um, to think about it if it's you know and, and contact me if you want to. But it is uh, make no do, do not have the blinders on. It is a very tough thing to do. Well, I think, uh, and I want to thank you all for um, indulging me on, on that conversation for the last half hour or so. Um, to wrap up, uh, at least from my end, you know, let's pivot to something a little less serious. When there is all of this crazy stuff going on in the world, this this week in particular has been just whiplash looking at state and local and national news. Um, what do you all do to unwind and decompress and get away from it all? Not read self-help books. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For the record, okay, Mary Scott's always calling these books self-help. It is nonfiction. I mean, this is mm-hmm. you know, it's social science. It's research, Mary Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just had to. I just had to poke a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I I read fiction. I am a avid fiction reader, and um, but my my two wonderful friends here have gotten me into into books that that truly help me to think about a whole aspect of living that I haven't thought more about neuroscience, more about intentionality. And so that's been a really good thing for me. But fiction is my go-to place to unwind. I think for me, you know, music is probably, probably even more than, I don't know, like good food. I, I was thinking about this recently. Music is my primary source of pleasure. And so I do listen to podcasts, but I find that it feels like a sacrifice. So I love Making Sense with Sam Harris. That's my favorite podcast. Also, Building a Story Brand with Donald Miller. I love that. On Being with Krista Tippett. 
But really, when I want to unwind, I sit on my back porch, I kind of stare into space, and I listen to music. And that fills me in a way that um, there's no comparison. And, and, and I do have sort of a meditation practice. I think that's pretty important as well. Yeah. And y'all, I know I'm becoming an annoying CrossFitter who seems like I can only talk about CrossFit. But I'm about five months into it. And I have been so surprised what a stress reliever it is for me. It's like I'm really having to concentrate because even as a former athlete, these are just not movements I have ever done or have any idea how to do. So (laughs) I get the sense there's something important going on for me mentally, turning off one part of my brain that is constantly thinking about other things and forcing it to learn something new and very challenging for me. And then lastly, reading is way up there for me as a stress reliever. Right now, I'm reading two books that totally exemplify my type of book. Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss and Deep Work by Cal Newport. Y'all about to learn just how much of a basic white girl I am. <laughs> I, uh, I teach a spin class and I really love that. Um, I read uh, 75 to 80 books a year, which is uh, not even half as much as, as John's wife does, but you know, it's still pretty good on, on global yeah. terms. Robin um, shows out. <laughs> um, and I really, really love cooking. You know, I, I think like a lot of Southerners, I was raised in a household that really valued mealtime. And whether it's just cooking for my husband and me, or we have, we host friends over a lot, almost every weekend, we have a lot of people over and, you know, it's just, that's probably my favorite thing is, is making food and having great deep conversations around the kitchen island or the dining room table. Well, John, it's been great to interview you today on Bell Curve and to be interviewed. That's a new experience for us. For our listeners out there, please subscribe to the podcast. He hosts Reckon Interview, John Hammontree on Reckon Interview. You will love it. And connect with Bell Curve on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest at Bell Curve Pod. We have a closed Facebook page where we get a little deeper into the issues. So look for that and subscribe on Apple Podcast Stitcher or wherever you download your podcast. Please leave us a review. It really helps. And don't forget that on November 5th, we are having Bell Curve Book Club. Liz, you want to give us the skinny? Yeah, sure. On November 5th, we are going to be discussing our latest Bell Curve Book Club pick, The Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin. Um, it follows Gretchen's year-long experiment to discover how to create true happiness, uh, drawing on cutting-edge science, classical philosophy, and ro- real-world examples. She gets, she does a lot of data and, and research, which you know as, uh, as Bell Curve ladies love, and uh, she delivers an engaging, eminently relatable chronicle of transformation. We're really looking forward to diving into that with y'all. Don't worry, you don't have to have read the book to get something out of it. We're going to kind of hit the high points and and discuss some of the key takeaways, but I do hope that you will take the time to read it. It's a pretty short book, and I was really one of my favorite, <laughs> as Mary Scott calls them, self-help books. I call them personal development books <laughs> that I've read so far this year. Yes, so thanks again, John. We appreciate you. Thank y'all. This is great. <laughs>